God, we thank you for your word that uh, illuminates our lives, that gives us wisdom. We thank you that you've blessed us um, with insights into who you are through your word. Um, We give you praise for Jesus, your son who came and died for our sins so that we might know forgiveness and redemption and salvation. And I pray this morning that as we look at your word, God, one, I pray that the material that I've uh, written here will be focused enough that people can leave here knowing you better. I pray that you would guide us and lead us in truth. I pray that you would illuminate the words uh, within your scripture um, and change our hearts as we study together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, In 1955, American author Flannery O'Connor released a a collection of short stories called A Good Man is Hard to Find. I was an English literature major in college, and I was fascinated by Flannery O'Connor because she's the only Christian realist that actually managed to sort of meld the two. But anyway, it's a real strange and interesting work of fiction uh, written from a Christian worldview. But I've occasionally wished that Flannery O'Connor would have written a follow-up, a second collection, called A Good Leader is Harder to Find. Okay, Because a good man may be hard to find, but a good leader is exponentially harder to find. Okay, I mean, politicians, regardless of their party affiliation, are routinely exposed for being corrupt. Civic leaders arrested for DUI from time to time. You have pastors removed from leadership for marital infidelity, business leaders reaping dishonest gains by uh, manipulating the numbers. You have world leaders exploiting their people for personal profit. And if you only ever got your information from the major news outlets, it would appear, at least in my opinion, that for every one decent leader out there, you've got at least 10 cruddy leaders uh, abusing their power and abusing their authority. I once heard a funny, well, I thought it was funny, but a funny story about uh, the pastor, John Piper, who was approached by a young couple who were so excited to introduce him to their new baby boy. And they come up to John Piper, and with great joy on their faces, they tell him that they named their son after him. And, you know, giving him, well, giving him the first name Jonathan, the middle name Piper, and then the last name, whatever it was, Smith, right? And most people like you or me would probably be excited, we'd be honored by such an act of esteem, but John Piper was furious, and he told the couple that he was upset, he he expressed that to them, and that he thought that they had made a foolish mistake in naming their son after him, okay? It's too late now, it's already on the birth certificate, right? And of course, they were confused, you know, they, they thought that this was a great honor and privilege, and he went on to explain to them that at the present moment, his name carried with it a sense of character and honor and esteem. But that for as long as he was alive and a leader, he could screw the whole thing up overnight. He could make one poor decision and in the blink of an eye, his name would be a mark of shame and ridicule and disgrace. Just that easy, just with one simple leadership failure. And if it happened that he actually did that, then this poor kid for the rest of his life would be named John Piper Smith, and he would have to carry that mark of shame. And John Piper, I think, understands that a good leader is hard to find. And it's all too true that people that often we look to as wonderful leaders, people we once regarded as great leaders, frequently fall and fail and end up sort of bankrupt in their leadership. 
And it sometimes makes me wonder, you know, what, what our world is coming to when this kind of thing, it, it appears, happens all too frequently, right? And then I remember that these types of problems, they're not unique to our time. Poor leadership, unfortunately, is not a modern problem. It is a human problem. Okay, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 16 this morning. And uh, I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 5 for you. I encourage you to bring your Bibles, or if you're more uh, tech-savvy, download the app on your phone. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we'd be happy to set you up with one. But I did also include the scripture in the uh, handout for you if you want to find that inside the first page there. But let me read this, and we're going to explore this idea a little bit more. I'm sure you, I, I know you guys touched on it with, with, uh, with Saul last week and my friend Jonathan, but... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, what's that? Josh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to hear. Forgive me. Let me read this. <laughs> the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Just, just on a side note, isn't it fascinating how, how much fear there is by people in this passage because of Saul and his leadership? But God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Even after all that Saul has done and all that Samuel has seen him do in his leadership failure, he still grieves over the loss of this man? I mean, Saul was miserable as a failure, or was a miserable failure as a leader. He failed to listen to God. He failed to obey God. He failed to trust God. And as a result, God rejected him as king. But I would say that the blame only partly lies with Saul. The other part belongs to the people of Israel. Remember these people who demanded that God give them a human king. It was God's intention for his people to be directly under his leadership. This is called a theocracy, where God is essentially king and the people do what he says through a spokesperson or spokespeople that represent him. But the people of Israel, they didn't want God to be their leader. They did not like that idea. They didn't think it it was something they would be comfortable with. And they looked around them at the pagan nations surrounding them. And they told God, we want to be just like everybody else. We don't really want to be your special people. We we just want to be like them. So give us a king. And they failed to trust God and God let them have their way. And the result was a cruddy king named Saul who was more concerned with himself in the end than he was with those whom he was chosen to lead. Now we're in this series called Epic and our goal each week is to see how the Bible is one unified story with several what I I would call mega trends, big themes that run throughout all of its pages. 
And ultimately, at the very heart of Scripture, and the one single theme that all the other themes point to, is essentially this. God has redeemed humanity from sin through the work of Jesus. God has redeemed humanity from sin through the work of Jesus. Now, I've sort of gone two directions already, so let me kind of tie it all together before we really move on to David. In order to do that, though, I have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story. God creates the world and the universe, and he places Adam and Eve within it as his subjects, smack dab in the middle of his garden paradise called Eden. And he is their king, and they live as his subjects in absolute happiness and in absolute freedom. They're completely free to love God unrestrained and trust him and obey him, and nothing can keep them from that freedom. It's a perfect theocracy. Until one day, Eve buys into the lies of the serpent who tells her that God is not a good king, that he's holding out on her and Adam, and that uh, humans would be better off if they were their own kings. And so she and Adam, unfortunately, both believe the evil lie that God should not be the leader of their lives, that they should lead their own lives. And this right here explains why most of the leaders in the world, both on the big stage, the global level, and on the little stage, the local level, why leaders so often stink. Because we as humans have bought this lie that we are better leaders in our lives than God is in our lives. We think we're more qualified to control our lives than God is qualified to control our lives. And this is the mistake that Adam and Eve made. It's the mistake that Israel made by wanting Saul as their king. And it's the mistake that we make from day to day when we're faced with choices and we look to no other authority beyond our own to make those decisions. And I'm suggesting that this is why leaders so often stink because they think that they're more qualified than God to be in control. But what does that mean for you? Let's bring it home a little bit more, okay? Because you can't really change any of the leaders that you're subject to. I mean, I guess maybe me, you guys could run me out of here or something like that or you could sit down with a cup of coffee and tell me how you feel. But a lot of the leaders in your life, you have no power over. Okay? If you have a Saul in your life who's abusing authority, you more than likely can't change that. But what you can change is yourself. Uh, a term, self-leadership. You can change that. Okay? You can pray and you can seek and you can ask and you can dig deep into your heart and examine the ways in which you are a cruddy king of your own life and you can change you. Because we shouldn't fool ourselves. I'm sure that most of us in this room, we love God, but we're still fallen human beings, which means that we're subject to sin and error. And no matter what we say, at the center of our heart, the primary object of our affection that sits at the center of our heart, quite often, if we're honest, we have something there besides the one true God of Scripture. And even a lot of times when God is the most beloved thing in our hearts, we're not immune from other things assaulting that position and waging war in our lives for our affections. All kinds of things. And whatever it is that sits at the center of your heart, that is the thing that controls your life. That's the thing that dictates 
the types of decisions that you make. That's the thing that leads you ultimately. And you, as the self-proclaimed leader, the self-proclaimed king of your own life, the leader of you, you have a daily decision that you have to make. And it looks like this. Are you going to be like Adam and Eve? Are you going to be like Saul? Are you going to be like the people of Israel and refuse to trust God? Refuse to believe that he is a better king than you could ever be? Are you going to refuse to submit your life to his leadership and his authority daily? Or will you allow God to lead your life? Will you be obedient to him? Will you give him the power and the authority to rule over you? How do you like those terms in light of your individualistic upbringing? The idea of God ruling over you. Because the truth is God wants to rule over you. Not only does he want to, he does, whether you acknowledge it or not. But he wants to rule over you. He does not just demand your Sunday morning. He does not just demand your casual prayer life. He does not just demand a little bit from your paycheck here or there. Or the occasional thought in his direction. God demands to rule over your life as the good and true and better king. With all authority and power to lead you where he wills with the expectation that you will follow ultimately for your well-being. And so the question comes up on a daily basis. Are you going to murder consciously the false god of achievement? Are you willing to consciously murder the elusive false god of beauty? Will you kill the lying false gods of money and power, entertainment, happiness, popularity, safety, whatever it is that attempts to hold that position central to your heart? Are you willing to die to your puny self so that God in all of his glory and all of his majesty can love and rule your heart as your one and only authority? Is that something that you are willing to do? Because make no mistake about it, this is the call of the Christian life. It's not happy, bubbly, yay, all the time, rainbows and butterflies is the term that I like to use. This is the call of the Christian life. It's a constant self-death so that God is king and leader of our lives. And does that describe your life? Or are you giving God scraps? Uh, there's a wonderful uh, uh, preacher, uh, Francis Chan. He, he uses the term feeding leftovers to a hungry God. Is that what we do? And honestly, so much of the trouble that we find ourselves in is from cruddy self-leadership when we don't submit our lives to God. And we just do our own thing expecting that God is then going to pour out his blessings on us Because we go to church or something like that. Are you really submitted to the authority of God in your life? Well, Saul, who couldn't cut it because he was not submitted to the authority of God in his life, is very unceremoniously replaced by David in this sort of funny scene in 1 Samuel 16. This little shepherd boy, David, so worthless in the eyes of men that he wasn't even invited to the party, is anointed the next king of Israel. Read on with me 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, this is Samuel now. 
When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Again, David, he wasn't even invited to the party. I mean, he was the runt out in the field taking care of the sheep, which is no lofty position. Okay? And although he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome, next to his brothers, he was clearly a nobody. David was so insignificant in the eyes of his own father that his dad didn't even think about inviting him to meet the greatest prophet of his day, Samuel. Somebody had to keep the sheep, but you probably could have hired somebody to do that for a little bit while Samuel comes and hangs out at your house. And yet it was David whom God sought to be the next king of Israel. David, the insignificant shepherd boy, is the one whom God chooses to be the leader of his people. Why? Why? Why is David set apart? We can tell from the text that David must have looked inferior to his brothers. Depending on your translation, it may say the youngest or it may say the smallest. He was smaller in stature. Eliab and Abinadab and all the others, it's implied that they too must have been handsome. They were probably strong and muscular. We know from the next chapter of Samuel, 1 Samuel, that they fought in the army. So they more than likely looked fierce and courageous, strong and buff. And David, in comparison, was small. And yet God tells Samuel that he doesn't care about any of the physical external appearances. It is irrelevant to him. So what did David have that the others didn't have? What was in David's heart that was lacking in the hearts of his brothers? Well, Acts 13.22 tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And I sincerely believe that this is the most beautiful compliment that could be said of anyone. I mean, if I could have that on my tombstone, I would be happy. Well, I'd be happy for other reasons. But anyway, to be called a man or a woman after God's own heart. So what does that mean? Well, at the center of God's heart is a love for God. We talked about this not too long ago. God loves himself, and he should, because he's the greatest thing in all of the created order, in all of the spiritual world, and all of time. He is preexistent, eternal. Nothing created him. He has always been. And he is the most glorious, most wonderful thing ever. And it would be criminal, I would say, if God, the greatest being there is, loved something else more than he loved himself. It would be ridiculousness. 
And it's out of his overwhelming love for himself that he loves you and he loves me because we have been created in his image and we have been invited into a loving relationship with him. So back to David then. David was a man after God's own heart, which means at the center of David's heart was a deep and sincere love for God. Read the Psalms written by David. It's in every line. And that kind of beautiful poetry only flows from a heart that's just smitten with love for its object of affection. What did David have that his brothers lacked? I would say it was a wholehearted love for God. Which is why even after his atrocious sins recorded in scripture, David was not perfect. Yet he was still called a man after God's own heart. Because it wasn't his sin that ultimately defined him. He repented. Ultimately, in the end, it was his love for God that defined David. Okay, now here too in this text, I I would say that we find a, a principle for application. As God looks at your life, what does he find on the inside? When Jesus encountered the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, he had incredibly harsh words for them. He called them whitewashed tombs because on the outside they appeared very religious, very respectable, beautiful, the type of person that other people admired and wanted to be. They appeared to be men of God, but on the inside they were full of death Their hearts were evil. There was no sincere love for God, only a love for themselves, status, achievement, which is exactly what Satan came to achieve in Genesis 3, isn't it? The very same reason the Pharisees were such cruddy leaders themselves is because they were trying to lead their own lives apart from God's leadership in their life. And they totally missed the point. They had all of the religious pieces down, but totally missed To love God. And so when God puts his piercing gaze upon your soul and all of your thoughts and all of your affections and all of your longings are laid bare before him, what does God find there? Does he find cobwebs and emptiness? Does he find worldliness? Does he find evil and self-love? Does he find a beautiful appearance on the outside? An excellent physique, but death on the inside, a festering heart. Or does God find a heart like the heart of David that was far from perfect, far from being righteous in and of itself, but still near to the heart of God? And to put it even more simply, I mean, just ask yourself the question, do you love God? Do you love God? And is there anything in your life that you can do right now to love God more? Is there something that you need to confess before God or before somebody else maybe? Is there a person that you need to go to and ask for forgiveness so that you can more fully experience the forgiveness of God in your own life right now? Is there a habit or routine that you have that needs to be thrown out so that you can give God more of your time and more of your attention and focus to love him more? Is there an object in your life that steals your love from God that needs to be done away with? 
Is there anything that you can do in your life right now that will increase and enhance the love that you have for God? And if so, then you need to do it. I mean, when God looks at you, don't you want him to see a heart that loves him deeply? Even if it's frail. Even if it's broken. Wouldn't you love to be called a man or a woman after God's own heart? Wouldn't you love to have people say about you that the first thing that comes to mind when they think of you is that you love God deeply, like David did? I would say a real simple place to start making improvements in this area is just to go to God and tell him, God, I want to love you more. I only love you a little bit right now, but I'd love to love you a little bit more. God, would you increase my love for you? Maybe you could take some advice from David himself and read the Psalms. I'm doing this myself right now, and it's a wonderful experience. It always is. You see the love that David and the other psalmists had for God, and you cannot help but be inspired to love God more. In Psalm 116, verses 1 through 9, he writes this. David, he says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of shale laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk with the Lord in the land of the living. Isn't that beautiful? All right, I took a tangent there, but let me wrap up with this. For our time together uh, this morning to be really successful, at least in my mind, I need to do what I created this series to do, which is I want to show you a few ways in which David points to Jesus, in which David is a type of Christ within Scripture. Because Like I've said again and again, the Bible is all about Jesus. The life of David should lead us to Jesus. And ultimately, the life of David does, in fact, lead us to Jesus. Okay, so a couple ways. For starters, David loved God first and foremost, like we just talked about. But the connection that I haven't yet made in this regard is that at the heart of all of Jesus' perfect actions was a perfect love for God. David didn't love God perfectly, but he loved God immensely. Jesus takes that love for God reflected in the life of David and kicks it up a notch, ad infinitum. From an immense love to an immeasurable love, a perfect love, Jesus loved God. All of his actions sprung forth from a love for God. All of the obedience of Jesus, the submission of the cross, the humble suffering, the selflessness that defined his life, his love for people, his gentleness and his compassion, his courage and his conviction, his strength, it was all born out of a perfect love for God. And David loved God and he was called the man after God's own heart. Jesus loved God and came as a gift straight from the heart of our Father, God in heaven, to save those who put their trust in him. 
And Jesus is the better King David, who not only loved God more fully than David did, which is saying a lot, but also perfectly obeyed God and never sinned. But there's even more than that. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 11, verses 1 through 3. I want to touch for just a moment on David's actually anointing. Because it was many years, I'm sorry, his, his actual coronation. Because it was many years between when he was anointed king and when he was crowned king. In 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 says this. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king, or David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Okay, in this passage, the coronation of David, we see that David is given two titles. His first is shepherd of God's people, Israel. And the second, he's called prince or king over the people of Israel. For the sake of time, I'm going to use the term prince and king interchangeably. Okay, I recognize there are some differences, but a prince becomes a king if he's heir to the throne. So Jesus, like David before him, is our shepherd king. And to this day, Jesus reigns as shepherd king. He doesn't have a physical throne in this world, but he is still ruler as shepherd king nonetheless. Shepherd, meaning that he gently, tenderly, and graciously cares for his own. If Jesus is your Lord, then there's not a day of your life that he is not watching over you, caring for you, leading you, and providing for you. Revelation chapter 7 verses 17 speaks of those who endure the tribulation and it says for the lamb, Jesus, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now while that passage is speaking specifically about his treatment of those who endure the tribulation, the principle still applies for us as well. Jesus is not our dictator king. He is not our tyrant king. He is our shepherd king. And David knew exactly what this meant when he wrote Psalm 23. You know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. David himself was a shepherd and he knew that the role of the shepherd was to care for the sheep. And so understand, with Jesus as your king, you have a great shepherd who has overcome the world. And though you may suffer, he will never let you fall. And though you may struggle, he will never let you go. And though the journey will be difficult, he will never leave your side as you make it. He cares for you, he pursues you, he loves you, and he tenderly watches over you as your shepherd king. And as your king, and as the king of all things, there is nothing that can thwart his plans for you. David, as a shepherd, fought lions and bears. Imagine what Jesus can accomplish on your behalf as shepherd king. 
One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. I just want to read it for you. And I I come back to this one again and again in my preaching, maybe too often, but it's so good. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Jesus is King of Kings for numerous reasons, but not least of which is because he rose from the dead and he lives still. Unlike David, who died and stayed dead, Jesus rose from the dead to prove his power over all things, even death. And at the end of this epic story, the end of history, the end of your life, and the end of all things, all authority rests in the hands of Jesus, who is David's king and who reigns eternal. And every word, every thought, Every action, every deed of every person who has ever lived will come under his judgment. And every good deed, scripture tells us, will be rewarded. And every evil deed will be punished. And everyone who trusts in the name of Jesus as shepherd king will be saved. Saved. Now to be honest with you, I keep a pretty close eye on national events and global events. I could tell you quite a bit about what's going on in Iraq right now with ISIS and in Russia with Putin and in China with communism and even in our American political system. But you know what? None of it worries or bothers me all that much. And the reason is because all of these leaders are really just pawns in the hands of our God. And they may be self-serving, they may be vain, they may have power in the material realm to harm you or control you or dictate your life, but when it really comes down to it, they are all subject to Jesus. And it's Jesus who is the good and great king. He alone is a leader worth following, compassionate and strong, selfless and courageous, loving and stern. He is the giver of life, the source of all joy, the object of your heart's desire. And he reigns with all power and all authority and uh, for all eternity as our shepherd king. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are a good king. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you proved your power and authority not by strong arming, but by going to the cross. Jesus, we worship you because you are a king of kings and a lord of lords who loves deeply and is compassionate and has saved and rescued your people. And God, I pray that we would be people who love you well, who love you deeply, who are concerned about the state of our heart before you, who long to be known as people who have a heart after your own heart.
And God, would you help us in that regard? Would you increase our love for you? And Lord, we turn to you now in this time and we just worship you. We worship you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that you are the better David who rules with all power and authority. And we offer our lives before your throne as a sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.